We're going to dismiss the Children for Children's Church, and we're going to continue on this morning in our series on what is the church. So you can turn to Revelation 2, if you like. And as we do so, let me just predicate real quickly, why are we doing this series? Why are we going through this series? I just read an article that cites Anne Graham Lotz. Uh, many of you may recognize one name in there. Many of you probably know who Anne Graham Lotz is. She is daughter, granddaughter, um, distant third cousin, college roommate to Billy Graham, um, and she does a lot of speaking. And she just went on record for saying that she believes that uh, the Lord's judgment is heading this way. That uh, these are precarious times. Um, she believes that the Lord told her that in a time where her husband had contracted an illness. And so she was forced to take time off from speaking to her. And she just quietly kept beseeching God and asking God, what am I supposed to learn right now? What am I supposed to see? What am I supposed to understand? You know, she doesn't stand alone. There are many that look at the state of the world, and there's probably many in this room that look around and see what's happening worldwide. And we're kind of in a bubble here, aren't we? Have you ever lived that? Have you ever been in that situation where, where you're in a bubble? It happened to me in junior high one time in dodgeball. It was like, uh, it's just a salient memory in my, in my mind. We called it burnout back in the day. Any of you guys play that when, you know, it was raining outside, they had to stick you in the gym? Yeah, and you had the two cones and all the studs in the world would go after the balls and, and then the, the, the really wimpy, scared guys like me would stand against the back wall and hide behind a junior high girl. Yeah. Sorry, Jane Brown. Sorry. You took one for me right in the head. That was nice. Anyway, um, so I remember this one particular day where we were playing, and I don't know what the deal was, but it was like there was a bubble, like a force field around me. And the ball couldn't hit me, and I was in my moment of glory. There was like 42 primed Athenian warriors on the other side of me. Just slinging balls, and they just couldn't hit me. And, and then, you know, the, the buzzer rang, and I was popular for about 30 seconds. And uh, I'll never forget that moment. I, th I just kept thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And it just never happened. I kind of equate that with where we are here. All around us in the world, people are dying. All around us, all around the world, people are dying for the cause of Christ. And yet the American church is dying. It's dying in a different way. It's, it's not dying because it is overtly persecuted. It's dying because it's covertly being persecuted from the inside out. This is why we're doing this series. Because it doesn't matter what I say or what any other pastor says about what the church is supposed to be. You're going to hear some interesting quotes today by people in our society. Who should we worry about? 
when it comes to what the church should believe. Who should command our attention? Who has the authority? Who has the right to state or stipulate what should the church be? And what should they believe? I'm ready for the Sunday school answer. It's not hard. Thank you. I hope you're there. Because we're getting to a point in time where a lot of churches aren't there. They're changing. They're changing. This is why we're doing this series, my friends. It's because I don't care ultimately if what I preach upsets people, doesn't fit into their quotient of calculated theology. I care that Jesus Christ is pleased because as a shepherd, I'm feeding you correctly. I'm giving you that which is healthy, which comes directly from Him, not to be twisted or distorted for my purposes. That is my pleasure this morning. Let's pray as we enter into the Scripture. Lord, it is a difficult Intenuous thing to stand here on your behalf. And so I'm going to ask for your help, God. I'm going to ask that as I try to communicate your message out of these verses to a particular church, that it comes through clearly and that your spirit works beyond what I can say, that your spirit speaks to the heart of each individual. And that there is a result, a resolve that happens that encourages each person to know about your loving kindness and your holiness. And about the broader picture of a relationship with you rather than being immersed and flooded with all the debates And all the periphery that's being talked about and adapted to in our society. Speak to our hearts. Give us conviction, God. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to ask you a question. I think it's a pretty simple question. Maybe it's not. What do you hold on to? What do you hold on to? And you say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, have you ever been in a situation where you really had to hold on to something because your survival depended on it? I can think of some areas in my life that weren't so serious. Being on a Uh, theme park ride called the Rainbow. I had a different name for it. The Demon's Lair. I didn't understand. I was a little kid. And see, this, this ride is this round, it's just like this giant round cage. Cage should be the operative word. I should have noticed right away. And so it spins on the center axis and 
you stand up in this cage and there's probably 40, 50 of these cages around. And so then it starts spinning at a super fast rate and then it starts raising. So you're kind of like going up in the air and you're thinking, at least I was, I'm going to fall and I'm going to die. And so I'm holding on to these bars for my life. Thinking, and then I would get a rest on the way down. You know, when I hit the bottom for about five seconds, I get to rest. Then I hear comes sheer death and terror. I've got to hang on one more time. Or I'm fall- and, and somewhere in the midst of that ride, I realized, wait a second, nobody's falling. How can this be happening? I was terrified. There are times in my life where I held on to my faith just like that. Where it didn't make a lot of sense. Where disaster was striking where tenuous things were happening, where I had no answers. And I didn't even have the answers spiritually, my friends. I knew it here, but I didn't have it here. I had one foot dangling over the cliff with my faith. But I had a choice. Either let go of that faith and fall, or hang on by a strand. And I held on. Because it was the only thing I knew that was worth holding on to. So this morning, my question to you is this. What do you hold on to in extraordinary circumstances? Maybe you've been following the story of Miriam Ibrahim. She's the the mother of two that has been imprisoned until this past Monday in Sudan. If you know anything about Sudan, it's split politically, that there's incredible warring that's going on within that country. And she was imprisoned because of being a Christian. That's it. Because of being a Christian. Her father was a Muslim, but her father left her when she was two months old. And so the government officials, even though she was raised as a Christian under a Christian mother, took her and imprisoned her for simply being a Christian while she was pregnant. That's not enough. She wasn't just, um, she wasn't just put in a situation where she was imprisoned. She was in a situation where she was going to be executed. She was going to be given 100 lashes. And then she was going to be hung to death. Folks, this is not like... This isn't missionary stories from the 1900s. This happened this past week. And only through political pressure, because she's married to an American, was she released. Even though she was released, on Tuesday they were heading to the airport to get out... And because of the fractions within the Sudanese government, one faction wasn't happy that she was released. And so they blocked her and her family, her entire family was arrested again on Tuesday. So it goes on and on. What do you think she's holding on to? By the way, she gave birth to a child while she was shackled in that prison. All she had to do was renounce her faith in Jesus Christ and adopt the Muslim faith. That's all she had to do. Yet she didn't. She was faithful to the end, just like the church at Pergamum. There are teachers, there are businessmen, there are military within our own country that are being marginalized because of their Christian faith. Teachers that are being fired or can't get a job or never get a promotion because they are Christians in a secular society. There are businessmen that are being told because of your Christian faith, you have to go to counseling And you have to perform certain business actions that are beyond anybody else's business. There's a petition right now 
It has over 100,000 signatures that those that are in the Air Force are allowed to have their Bibles and to speak freely about their faith. Did you think that we would see that day? It is just going to get exponentially worse and worse and worse. Why do you think this is happening? Do you think this is happening just because it's the fairness of the doctrine of the land? You know, when you get sucker punched from the right, sometimes you might say, oh, what was that? But it happens the second time, happens the third, the fourth. Most of us would start paying attention, wouldn't we? We need to pay attention to what's happening around us. What if I was, was to tell you this? Jesus told us exactly what He expects of our church in our community. Jesus told us exactly what He expects of us in our worship. And Jesus told us exactly what He expects in our ability to abide in Him. We're going to look at that this morning and continue on. So let's look in Revelation 2, 12-17 at this little church or large church. We have no idea what their size was, but they're an important church and they're in Pergamum. And I'll explain a little bit about Pergamum in a moment. Starting in verse 12, it says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. I'm sorry, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now what we've done and what we will continue to do while we're in this series is break down exactly this pattern that Christ speaks to while he gives this information to John in a vision. There's a beautiful pattern and almost a poetic symbolism that goes through every single one of these letters to these churches. John's carried up in this vision. He sees the throne room of God in chapter 1, describes all of these picturesque and, and beautiful, immensely beautiful things that he cannot even describe. They, they go beyond the words of description. And now while we have words there, they are almost just symbolic of what he saw. That our, our words fail to express deeply the beauty of what he saw in heaven. So he goes through that experience. Now Jesus starts speaking to him. What does he say? Jesus' heart is with his church. Understand this. That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have made a statement of faith, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He was crucified on the cross, and He rose on the third day, and you don't know how all that happened, but you believe it because God draws you to that, then you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are the church. Now, we're the church here at Concord Bible, 
We're a local church, but we're part of the believing body of Christ. And so as he's speaking here to individual churches, he does so in a pattern to show the things that they're doing well. And he does so to reveal who he is in light personally as a savior to that local body. And he also speaks to the things that they're not doing well at. Then he tells them how to fix that. And then he tells them, where is your reward? And so we're going to go through that and look at that with the church of Pergamum. Before we do so, I want to give you a little history about the church of Pergamum. I would say of all the churches, I think this one reflects the most like the city just a half hour away. This was a society that thought they were that and a slice of bread and some peanut butter mixed in. They thought that they were the elite of the society. They thought that they were progressive. They thought that they were highly uber intelligent. The single largest library outside of Alexandria existed at Pergamum. As a matter of fact, there was such a war there that was going on between Pergamum and Alexandria that they tried to steal a librarian away from Alexandria. And so the chief librarian there cut the source of papyrus to write things down. This is where we get... Oh, what's the other thing other than papyrus? Parchment. This is where we get parchment. Parchment came from the library at Pergamum. Because economically, and because of this war of the intelligentsia, they had to be resourceful. And so they figured out how to make parchment. They had intelligence. They had societal um, understanding. They had the respect of Rome and the world around them. They were cosmopolitan. Do you get a picture of Pergamum? Not only were they cosmopolitan, but they probably at that time were the single most convoluted city as far as idolatry. They had multiple gods that they worshipped. Uh, they had multiple uh, Caesars that had statues that you would have to worship those individual Caesars as well. So massive idolatry and massive idol worship was going on. We'll talk about that in a moment with Antipas. So... What do we do with all that, and, and how, do we, how do we deal with it? Well, I'm giving you some background history because it really applies here. This is a unique city in the sense that the proconsul also had what's called the right to the sword. This was the only city outside of Rome that they had permission to rule there by their proconsul to execute people by the sword. Everywhere else, remember where Paul had to go to Rome and appear before Caesar there, in order for him to be put to death. Here at Pergamum, they were seen as so elite, so cosmopolitan, uh, the Illuminati, if you will, that they were given that right to judge. And it was an incredible time. As a matter of fact, let's, uh, Dave, go ahead and go to the next slide. Their idolatry was so uh, deeply manifested. Uh, this is what's called the seat of Satan. You heard it here in God's words, this was what was called the throne of Zeus. Now, why, why call the throne of Zeus and what happened here? Where this is, is a, a, a museum in Berlin. And a German archaeologist discovered this area. He was in uh, what's now modern-day Turkey. And uh, somewhere like, I think, 1859, 
he was in that region of Pergamum, and he noticed that the locals were actually mining and excavating the marble from the archaeological site, this historical city, for their own houses. And so he, he started to explore and say, where are you getting this from and what's going on? And that's how ancient Pergamum was discovered and how they started to ascertain all the different individual things. He found this incredible archaeological quote-unquote throne. Folks, this is an altar for sacrifices. Human sacrifices were done here. Many of you may have seen some recent movies where they would put an individual inside of a bronze bull and then they would heat that bull up and the person would roast to death inside of the bull. And here at Satan's throne or the altar to Zeus, that is exactly what happened. They had a bronze bull here that had multiple tunnels or, or, or horns or channels, tunnels that would go up to one single speaker that came out of the bull's mouth. And as the person would die through torture and execution, their screams would be amplified out of that tomb. This is a cosmopolitan illuminated society. You'll hear why I talk about this in a moment. Let's get into breaking down the scripture here this morning. Look at verse 12. Jesus' description of himself. He does this with every single church. Why does he do this? Because just like here at the Concord Bible Church, Jesus wants to be a personal savior to you. How does he relate to you? Well, if you're suffering... And there's someone who has the ability to help you. Maybe you have to go to counseling. Isn't it helpful if the counselor understands you? And I mean, recently I was talking with some people in counseling and I felt compelled to talk about how, yeah, I just didn't make that much at my pampered chef party. You know, or uh, yeah, I understand the issue. I don't do pampered chef, let me just tell you. Um, it's the issue of understanding where a person struggles and you appreciate how a counselor can relate and then you want to share more because you feel like the person understands you. This is exactly what Jesus does at the beginning of every single one of these letters to these individual churches. Now, he's, he describes himself how? He describes himself as one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Well, that's an interesting idea. Why would Christ describe himself this way to this church? Well, if you're being persecuted as the church, if you live in the only city outside of Rome that can put you to death with an execution by the sword, and you're calling out to Christ to take care of you or avenge you or whatever it would be, maybe those are comforting words that ultimately Christ will come and He will win and He will be victorious over those who are persecuting you. You think their sword is bad. I come with a two-edged sword and I'm prepared to use it. He's speaking to their suffering. Jesus speaks to our suffering. He speaks to our hearts. These words are by no mistake. 
We look through Scripture over and over, and he calls himself the Alpha and Omega. He calls himself the Lion of Judah. He calls, here he describes himself as a sharp two-edged sword. Why? Because he's saying, I hear you. I know what the challenges are. I know what the difficulties are. And I will be victorious over your persecutors. Is this your picture of God? Is this your picture of Christ? So what's he commend them for? Verse 13, he commends them for not denying their faith. And here's the story of Antipas. John knew Antipas. It's rumored by tradition that John probably set Antipas, just like Polycarp, John set Antipas as bishop over the church in Pergamum. And history holds that Antipas was not that kind of timid, laid down, roll over kind of guy. He held up the word of truth and it became a threat, even to the point where those who were local were told, and, and this is legend, this isn't necessarily uh, biblical truth, that local priests saw him as a threat. And so they went to the proconsul and they simply said this, we're having dreams where we are haunted by demons, and those demons are telling us that it is because Antipas that they are being driven out from the land, and we need this to stop. So the proconsul comes to Antipas and says, we want you to offer an offering to Domitian. All you have to do is take some incense. We've talked about this, right? This is... What was happening in, in, in Ephesus as well. Just take some incense and drop it in the offering. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's doing this. Just take a little bit of incense and drop it in. And you're free to go. Antipas said no. Because why? I would be denying my faith. There is one God, and His name is Jesus Christ. And your gods and your idols that you worship do nothing but make you money. He paid the ultimate price. But think about this for a moment. What are you willing to hold on to? Remember, that's the question. If you're suffering persecution, if you are going through an incredibly difficult time, what are you willing to hold on to? Obviously, Antipas historically was willing to hold on to his faith, even to the point of an excruciating death. It is said that while he was dying, he was singing praises that the Lord gave him strength in the midst of that torture. Here's the part I love. Here's the part I love. The commendation of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine being named personally by Jesus Christ in the Scriptures as a commendation to you holding on to your faith? You see, Jesus again speaks to the personal struggles of the church. He knew they were scared. He knew that they were suffering. And He knew who would be in their mind. What do they say militarily? You want to cut off an army? You cut off the head. And Antipas was the head of that church. 
We want to put down this group that's a threat to our economical way of life. Let's make an example of the head. It invigorated the church, my friends. But it was always in the back of their minds what happened to Antipas. They may have been holding on by a thread saying, I don't know if I can hold on. And Jesus knows that. And so He comes to them and He says, I commend you for your faith just like Antipas. Do you realize what He's saying? He's saying, whether you suffer ultimately or you're suffering how you are suffering now, I equate it the same. My friends, today to you, there are times where we're going to be holding on to our faith by a thread. Understand this, that when you remain faithful, Jesus commends you. He names you for doing it. But they weren't perfect. There's a rebuke. And it's for false teaching. Let's look at it. This is so desperately important. So did you get the part where they're commended for holding on? My question to you and Jesus' question to you this morning is, there are things all around you that are threatening your conviction, that are threatening your belief, and they're going to try to erode, and they're going to try to erode. We're going to give definition to that now as we move forward. But let's just talk about it right now, that before we move forward, the issue is this, do we want that commendation from Christ? Do we want to be known as those who held on to their faith and pleased their Savior? Because it's not to the level that we would lose our lives, but folks, it starts somewhere, doesn't it? And do we want to be those that are named for compromising? Because that's how this church of Pergamum was known. They were known as the compromising church. And so let's get into that. And here he has his rebuke for them, verses 14 through 15. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay? Near as I can tell, and I'm no brilliant scholar, but he's rebuking them for holding on to things that aren't true. How does that happen? Because... The church isn't guilty of that, is it? By the way, a fascinating thing by Voice of the Martyrs is this, that they came out with some statistics that you know somebody probably for a thesis had to figure out. That they believe that there's been over 700 million Christians killed since the time of Christ for the cause of Christ. They believe that a large percentage of that, not a majority by any means, but a large percentage of that is Christians killing Christians. We don't tend to think in those terms, do we? And you're about to hear something that I'm going to encourage you with that, that, that decentralizes this position right here behind this pulpit. And it centralizes the Word of God as the priority. It's called orthodoxy. We'll get to that in a minute. But the church of Pergamum had a problem. They had two things that Christ brings up. One is the teaching of Balaam. Now this is an Old Testament story. I'm not going to get too far into it, but, but Balaam was summoned by this guy, um, Balak. And Balak wanted, he saw the Israelites camping as they're coming out of Egypt. And he saw them and they're a threat and he wants to, wants to take them out. So he summons this man of God, Balaam. 
And he tries to convince Balaam to put a curse onto the Israelites. Well, that would have been a little too overt. Balaam really didn't want to do that. There's a donkey involved. It talks. It's all kind of weird. Let's get beyond that. In essence, what he did is he took Midianite women and brought them into the camps and seduced the men of Israel. Not covert. I think they showed up with Avon packages, you know, some Schwann's ice cream. Who knows? I don't know. They had a potluck. It was a festival. I don't know. But the ultimate point is this, is that if there had been an army that was amassed, Israel would have prepared and they would have fended it off. What ended up happening is this covert operation to slowly infuse a different idea to appease to the emotion and to seduce and to tempt a person so that the draw of their heart which was solomon's problem right solomon a great man of god and yet he turned and he actually put up idolatry worship idol worship because of all the women that he gave his heart over to solomon had a small problem that turned into a really big one Well, this is the same thing that's happening to this church at Pergamum. That there were things within the city and the society of being in a Roman town and a highly affluent, highly cosmopolitan town, maybe just like ours. That the church was starting to allow to come in and change the way of thinking. To take what Jesus had set up that was good and was healthy and was keeping them safe and keeping them in line with, with understanding their God and having communication and abiding with Him. And nobody said anything. Nobody said anything. What did I just say? Nobody said anything. Antipas is gone. You get rid of a strong leader, you cut off the head, and suddenly some things can start seeping in that never would have made it in there. And so they let this come in. The other thing that you heard here was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what is that teaching? That doesn't matter so much as much as their approach to life. They were Jews. They were believers that were in the church, but they followed the teachings of this one individual. And it was more of a live and let live. We need to really... uh, uh, be non-judgmental. We need to be more egalitarian. We need to be more accepting and loving of people. So let's kind of adopt a little bit, just a little taste of the society around us. Maybe dropping a few things of incense. That's not going to hurt anybody. Jesus isn't threatened by Domitian. Come on, it's not going to hurt. And yet Jesus speaks. And He says, this I hold against you. You have allowed this teaching that is false and will destroy you to creep in. My friends, the attacks on the Scripture and what is good for us and what makes our life definable and makes our life full of peace are rarely overt. They're almost always covert. Have you had the day 
where you scratch your head and you say, this is not how I thought life would turn out. I'm a slave to my job. I'm a slave to society. I have to dress a certain way. I have to look a certain way. I have to talk a certain way just to survive. How did I get here? I have to please this person, this person, this person in order to be successful. How did I get here? And suddenly your life turns into, I'm not impressed with this anymore. I'm actually worn out by it. My friends, this is never what Christ desired. Never. You can turn to Genesis if you want. Genesis 3. Um, I'm just going to speak to it real quickly. Where did this come from? Where did the essence of false teaching... I'm going to give a, a real brief picture as we move forward. You can go to the next slide. Here's the challenge of false teaching. And here's why Christ says you need to change from this. Eve's walking through the garden one day, right? What were the two commands the Lord told them? This is going to be fun because you're all going to mumble like you're going to say the same thing, but you're going to like. So what, what are they? There were two things they were not supposed to eat of. What were they? Uh, and the tree of what? I keep hearing knowledge. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. He said of, of some of the other plants you can eat, right? That, that was his... All! That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. He says, man, I'm going to give you abundance. But there's a couple things that are not good for you to eat of. Don't question me on it. You're not even going to understand it if you question me on it. Just trust me. By the way, that's the issue of false teaching. Either we trust God for who he is, we trust Jesus for who he is, or we don't. We trust ourselves. And here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. For you and me, we may not be in a dungeon. We may not be shackled while we're giving uh, birth. But this is where we are. Satan comes to Eve while she's walking through. And she says, well, God said, paraphrasing, God said we can't eat of these. And Satan does what? He says, well, God's a jerk. And you should just shove your fist in his face and say, I'm going to eat whatever I want to eat because it's my God. He didn't say that. He said, oh, come on. Look at it. It looks fine. Surely you won't die. By the way, would have been a very unfair God if he had not warned them ahead of time. If you eat of these things, you're going to die. He did. He gave him the warning. Now, why he had those things there, I don't know. That's God's business. The bottom line is, he set it up the way he set it up. He gave them everything else they could participate in. And all of a sudden, Satan comes along and he says, I'm going to destroy you. Watch and learn. Surely that's not what God meant. Because here's the deal. He knows that the second you eat of that, you're going to be like God yourself. Just heard this morning in another sermon about five individuals, college students at Berkeley that were surveyed as to why they left their faith. All five said, because I want to be God. 
ultimately, my friends, when we listen to false teaching, when we listen to things that are counter to what Jesus gives us that is good for us, that keeps us at peace, that keeps us able to thrive, not just survive, we are saying, I want to be God. Like Domitian, like Trajan, like Titus, like Augustus. Whenever we change what Jesus has given us for our good, for our benefit, we get tempted into that just like the church at Pergamum. And the minute we compromise, our lives get very complicated, don't they? And all of a sudden, we start to blame God and say, God, you promised that you would be what? You would be faithful, that I would have peace, that I would have your blessing. That I... This I have against you. You tolerate the teachings of Balaam. You've accepted the teaching of the Nicolaitans. False teaching. Young people in the room, and give a shout out for all my Demi Lovato fans. Yeah, I don't think so. Whatever. I didn't think I'd get a big shout out. But this is for you. So Demi was quoted this past week as she appeared at a pride parade in Los Angeles. I'm not even speaking to that issue. Just listen to what she says. She says, my Jesus loves everyone. Folks, that's just like the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You see, when we say my Jesus in that kind of a context, she's not saying my personal Jesus, I love Jesus and how he relates to me. She's saying my idea of Jesus and how he operates, he loves everyone and he will accept everyone. Listen carefully to what Jesus says. So he rebukes them for false teaching and believing in false teaching and letting that come into their life. And then in verse 16, he says this. He says, therefore, repent. What does repent mean? It means to have a complete change of heart. It means to turn 180 degrees. It means not to even dabble anymore. It means to run the other way. To look as the opposite, the polar opposite of what you looked at before. So he says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Ouch. Personal Jesus. This is how much he cares about the church and not letting us get stuck in destruction. That if there are those among us or any of our churches that are seeking to influence what He has given us which is perfect and pure and twist it like Satan, surely that's not what God says. My Jesus accepts... By the way, let me just tell you what Jesus says about Himself. Yes, for God so loved the world. And I believe that to be the entire world. That doesn't mean that Jesus tolerates false teaching. You, if you look at Jesus' words while he was here on earth over and over and over, and usually with the religious leaders who had it messed up, he rebuked them over and over and over. Because there's something about truth, Jesus' truth, that matters and is specific. And so he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to clean house. So just take care of it before I have to get there. That's kind of nice, isn't it? It's kind of nice that he gives the warning ahead of time. Take care of it before I have to get there. Christ is patient with us. So the solution is to repent. The consequence, 
is that he's going to war against them with the sword of his mouth. Jesus will, will protect his church. What's the reward? Verse 17. Let's read it because it's, it's really kind of funky here. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We don't know what any of that is. I wish I could tell you some deep, shrouded information, but we really, I mean, some people try to speculate. You know me, I don't like speculation. Then I could be a false teacher. But there are some thoughts on this. Number one, that hidden manna is this idea that it was select. It was the best of the best. It was stuff that you would put away and save. And so by being hidden, it's, it's a little unknown. And so the idea of manna is sustenance. And this idea that Christ will give us perfected sustenance, especially for those of you who really like to eat, you get hungry. Some of you are there right now. You're hungry right now. There will always be as a reward sustenance for us so we'll never hunger again. Secondly, we'll be given a white stone with a name written on it that only he knows and we know. I don't know what the significance of that is, but he's speaking to that church at that time. And so as, as someone who tries to exposit the word, a thought on this is that during this time, often within the culture, a stone would be given to an individual as an invitation to a special social event like a banquet or a wedding. And you would show up at the door and your name would be on that stone. And that would give you permission of entrance. It would give you entitlement. And so maybe that's what Christ was alluding to, is that you're going to be given a stone with your name written on it, which will give you acceptance, that will give you entitlement to heaven and its perfection. Regardless, the issue is this, that there is a reward. If we repent from the issue of false teaching, if we hold to our faith where He commends us, He is a God that desires to bless us. He is a God, a God that desires to reward you and I. Let me give you some practical application in closing this morning. I have some questions for you. How do you hold up under pressure? When the pressure comes, how do you hold up? Here at church, do you think it would be within the possibility or the realm of possibility that people would get offended by one another? Do you think that would ever happen at a church? Some of you may have been offended by me already today. There are those that have been offended and they've left. They're gone. There are pastors that get offended by congregations and they leave. This is the ugly underbelly of church machinations or church life. Why? Because we're not willing to hold on to the people that we say we love. We're not willing to work it out. You know why? Because we can go a mile down the street and hit up another church where we can start all over again. This isn't what Christ wants from His church. When the offense comes, when the difficulty comes, we lean on Christ. We honor one another above ourselves. We practice love in its highest form and we let the Spirit and Christ rule the day because He can work through any problem and any difficulty. False teaching. How do we hold up under the false teaching pressure? I told you about orthodoxy. Here's the definition of orthodoxy. It's authorized or generally accepted practice or, or, or doctrinal belief. It's one that has, has existed for a long time and is generally accepted. You've heard progressives say, well, you know, maybe the Bible needs to change. Or maybe as the Bible is under attack, well, we don't really look at it that way anymore. 
You know, there's something about orthodoxy because it was there at the beginning. It was there when it was approved. If you've ever been playing a game with somebody and they show up and you guys have all the rules figured out, you've been playing this game for a long time. We've started playing games on our back porch during the summer. We play a, a game called Farkle. And uh, everybody's got different rules as to how to score Farkle. So I brought out the little bottle that has the rules on it. And so somebody rolled, you know, four or fives or something. And, oh, yeah, we're gambling on it, too. Oh, yeah, just know your past. I'm just kidding. We don't gamble in my house. And so somebody rolled four ones. And it's like, that's worth 1,000 points. No, it's worth 2,000 points. Well, you can't just come in here and tell me that it's worth 2,000 points. Look at the jar. That's orthodoxy. And so when people come along and they tell you that it needs to change, you need to question and use one word, and that is why. Why? And here's your application this morning. When the winds of morality, ethics, or faith begin to change, we should ask the following. Number one, always ask why. Why does this need to change? What's wrong here that we need to change this? Who are you that you have the authority to change what Jesus has set out from the beginning that is good for us? What would have happened if Eve had asked Satan, why? Why should I do that? And why are you telling me to do it? And why do you think you have the authority to change what he said? Things could have worked out vastly better. Next question, application. Does the Bible hold an opinion on the subject? Whatever the subject is, it's being tried or, or, or being changed. What opinion does the Bible hold on the subject? What is the orthodox understanding? Not what's coming just from the pulpit, but do some reading. Look into commentaries. Look into church history. We sang a song today, We Believe. That is orthodoxy. That is, that is a catechism. That is one of the belief statements that was firmly grounded at the beginning of the church. How are culture and history relevant to this subject? You're going to see as you study history and culture when it comes to doctrinal beliefs that there are attack upon attack upon attack upon attack that happen throughout history over and over and over. And guess what? Here's what's fascinating. You can kind of see it have a pattern. You can kind of see it come up again and again and again. Here's an interesting fact. When it comes to the issue of persecution, I told you that the church is actually responsible for a percentage of that persecution against Christians. There's a mind-boggling understanding when we talk about culture and history and how it's relevant to people wanting to change the truth of Jesus Christ. Something forced Joseph Smith to change what he knew. Something forced Charles Taze Russell to change what he believed. Joseph Smith has hundreds of millions of followers in Mormonism now. And just understand, you know, I know Mormons are are great people. The issue is, is that they don't teach exactly what Jesus teaches. And there can be a huge spiritual implication to that. The question is, why did Joseph Smith change it? That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be asking. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Watchtower Society, you know them better as Jehovah Witnesses, who's raised as a Baptist kid. What made him change from what he believed? 
I guarantee you, knowing the story of, of these two individuals, it ha- had to do with persecution and what they saw the Christian church doing to other Christians. It was a lack of solid teaching in their lives. And it was an emotional decision that made them, forced them on a certain level to create a more convenient belief system that they enjoyed better but in the end is disappointing to Jesus Christ. This morning as we close, it's not necessarily a feel-good message. It's a message that you're supposed to bank. It's a message that you're supposed to evaluate in your own life and say, where are those areas? How strong would I hold on when I'm challenged about my faith? And where are those areas of false teaching that are starting to come in? And what would Christ say? What would Jesus Christ say? Because it doesn't matter what Pastor Jeremy says. It doesn't matter what Joseph Smith says. It doesn't matter what Charles Stanley says. Oh, now I'm in trouble. It matters what Jesus Christ says. So get into the Word of God. And adapt your life to who Jesus Christ is. Rather than adapting Jesus Christ to your life. Let me close in prayer and I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward and, and the men to prepare for the offering. If you're visiting today, we're thankful that you're here. Please don't feel any compulsion um, to take part in the, in the actual worship through the offering. That's part of what we do as a thank you to our Lord and Savior. Um, if you would like, you can fill out one of the cards that's in the seat uh, in front of you and drop that in the offering plate. Let us know how we can pray for you. And let's gather back together here Wednesday night. And let's bring somebody with us. And if you need prayer for something, please write that on the back of the card. Don't hesitate to call me or email me during the week. I want to be here to encourage you, uplift you, and point you to Jesus Christ. And let's commit to doing that together, shall we? That we hold strong to being commended by Christ rather than being judged by Christ. I don't ever want Jesus showing up with that two-edged sword around here. It would be a little scary in my mind. Let's hold to the truth which gives us life and life more abundantly. Let me pray. Lord, to You be the glory. To You be the truth because You're the author of truth. And Father, as we seek to live out our lives through our days, I pray, Lord God, that You give us understanding and conviction to simply stay with You. And then when those teachings come along that challenge what You say and who You are and what You've given to us, give us the fortitude, give us the conviction and the strength to ask the simple question, why? Why would I follow that? And let us think through it and prayerfully think through it under the conviction of the Spirit. Let the Spirit test those things that come and want to infiltrate your message. Lord, encourage your church. Let us remain strong in your Word. And let us believe in that which is worth believing, that which gives us life and life eternal. To your glory, Father, take this offering, use it, Multiply it 
Bless those who give. In your name we pray. Amen.